Well, if you're anything like me, uh, you're familiar with the triumphal entry, which we looked at last week. And then it gets a little sketchy exactly what happens between the triumphal entry and Jesus dying on the cross, or probably the Last Supper and going to Gethsemane. And so now we begin uh, what is a quite substantive section in the book of Matthew, looking at Holy Week, uh, beginning in uh, chapter 21 of Matthew, verse 12 this morning. We'll be looking through uh, until verse 22, and that can be found on page number 982 of the Pew Bibles. Again, that's Matthew chapter 21, looking at verses 12 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. (laughs) Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, Jesus went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it, if you have faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. So grateful for Christ. And we pray the prayer that we prayed in the song we sung before, that you would show us Christ. That you would show us his glory and his greatness and his beauty and his love for sinners. That we too may come to him, blind and lame, knowing that by grace through faith, he will heal us and that he is our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, usually the title of my sermon is just sort of something I come up with to go into the bulletin and to go on the screen. But this morning, I actually want to stop for a moment and begin by describing why this sermon is titled Real Religion Versus Vain Religion. And uh, I first want to talk about what, what real religion is. Real religion 
is true religion. It's the religion that flows from a real and authentic and vital relationship with Jesus Christ. It's religion that has power. Real religion is like a tree that's alive because it's receiving nutrients from the rain and from the sun and from the soil so that it actually produces organic fruit. That's real religion. And vain religion is just vanity. It's a show. It's fake. It's going through the motions. It's religion without life and without power. It's like a dead tree with apples stapled to it. It might look on the outside like there might be some evidence of life, but it's just not real. So real religion is from God and for God, and vain religion is from man and for man. Now you may have heard people say something along the lines of, well, I am a Christian, and I am not religious, because Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm sure if I said, let's all raise our hands, if you've heard that before, most of us would probably raise our hands. And I think what they mean by that is that Christianity is real religion. It's not vain religion, but it is religion. And the reason I say that is because if you talk to somebody who says Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, and you said to them, okay, what does it look like for you to have a relationship with Jesus? They're going to say, I pray, I read my Bible, I go to church, and that's all religion. So the real dichotomy is not between religion and relationship. The real dichotomy is between real, vibrant, true religion and vain, outward, fake religion. So in our passage today, we pick up right after Jesus rides into Jerusalem, humble, mounted on a donkey, to the acclaim of the crowd, they're, they're welcoming him as their Messiah, as their King, as their Savior. Jesus receives all of that praise, but he's not here to save them from the Romans. He's here to save them from vain religion. And he's here to offer himself as a sacrifice so that we could experience and know true religion in Christ. So here's our outline for this morning. First, we're going to look at Israel's vain religion. Next, we're going to look at real religion in Israel. And then judgment on vain religion. And finally, the source of real religion. So what did Israel's vain religion look like? Well, our story picks up when Jesus uh, first enters Jerusalem, uh, but Mark tells us that what happened is Jesus, after the triumphal entry, came into Jerusalem, went to the temple, looked around, went back to Bethany for the night, and that the story that we read today actually takes place on the following day, 
on Monday. And you can imagine, this would have been anticlimactic for the crowds. So just imagine, you're one of the people in the crowds, you've broken off a palm branch, you've thrown it down, your cloak is filthy dirty because a donkey ran over it and then it got stomped on by all the crowds, and you're expecting Jesus to come into Jerusalem, do something really amazing and great. He comes in, he goes to the temple, he looks around and he says, all right, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to Bethany, hang out with Martha and Mary and Lazarus, see you guys. And then he just leaves. He doesn't gather an army. He doesn't challenge the political power of the Romans. Now he just goes to the temple, he looks around and he leaves and our story picks up the next day. Matthew tells us Jesus entered the temple. And on this day, he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So last week, we emphasized the humility of Jesus. As he came into Jerusalem humbled, mounted on a donkey, humble, mounted on a donkey. He had no riches, no army, no war horse. His saddle is a couple of cloaks. He doesn't look like a king. He looks like a poor carpenter from a backwater town. And so some might think that what happens here in the temple is a contradiction to the humility that we saw the day before from Jesus. As if somehow Jesus can't be humble and have authority and power at the same time. See, our culture thinks, our our culture actually associates, really, power and hierarchy with abuse. Our culture tells us the only way to be humble is to give up power. But Jesus humbled himself, not by giving up an ounce of power, but by taking on the form of a servant, by obeying his father, submitting to being whipped and beaten and spit on and drugged naked through the streets and hung on a Roman cross. And no one has ever demonstrated humility like Jesus. But he did not stop being God. He did not give up his power or authority, and he did not stop being the judge of all the earth. And so when he enters the temple this day, there's no contradiction between the humility we saw yesterday. He enters the temple as the judge of all the earth to condemn what is happening inside his house. So what's happening inside his house? Well, Jerusalem was filled with Jews from throughout Israel who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. Many of them had not paid the temple tax yet, and so they needed to pay the tax, but they, you could only use one type of currency to pay the temple tax, so they had to take their money and they had to exchange it for coins that they could use to pay the temple tax. Also, many of them needed animals to make their sacrifices, 
Uh, depending on how far away they traveled from, it probably made no sense to try to bring your own animals uh, because of the expense and difficulty of bringing them on a long journey like that. It's much easier to just go to Jerusalem and plan on buying your animals there. And that all sounds good, right? It seems like you would actually need people to exchange money and sell animals given the religion in Israel that God established. This seems like a much-needed service. So what is Jesus so angry about? Well, first of all, he's angry that they set up this market inside the temple. The temple is a sacred space. The outer court is the court of the Gentiles. So this market left no place for someone who was not a Jew to come and worship. Apparently the Jews didn't consider the court of the Gentiles to be sacred space. Another reason we know that this market is set up in the court of the Gentiles is because of what Jesus says. Uh, when Jesus speaks, he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. And there he's quoting Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. And I'm, I'm going to read you the whole context of Jesus' quote because it, it, it tells us exactly what Jesus wants to say and is saying by quoting the one line. Isaiah writes, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord... To minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, or nations, or Gentiles. It's the same word. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Imagine you travel all the way from Egypt to come to Jerusalem at Passover to worship God and you show up in the space that God has reserved for you to worship is filled. It's a market. There's people shouting and screaming and money jingling and clanging. There's no place for you to worship God. Because the Jews have blocked you out. They made the temple into a place where only they could worship by turning the court of the Gentiles into a marketplace. Just like we can turn this church into a place where only we worship. Simply by ignoring visitors who come here. We'd rather eat with the same people every week than invite someone new to break bread with us. But that's only half of Jesus' quote. Jesus said to them, It is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So on one hand, Jesus could be calling their market a den of robbers because they're literally robbing people. 
They probably were trading the coins for the temple tax for way more than those coins were worth. They probably were overcharging for the sacrificial animals because a hot dog is always more expensive at the stadium. The priests even could have been in on it. Imagine if somebody did bring their animal all the way from far away to come and sacrifice it for worship. Well, those animals had to be spotless and without blemish. And you can imagine the priests conveniently finding a spot or a blemish, forcing pilgrims to go and buy animals from the marketplace. That's all very possible and all very likely, given what we know about human nature. But the truth is, we don't know that for sure. But what we do know for sure is that when Jesus calls their market a den of robbers, we know that he's quoting the prophet Jeremiah. So we know Jesus meant what Jeremiah meant when he called the temple a den of robbers 600 years earlier. So let's again look at a quote from Jeremiah where we find Jesus' quote. Jeremiah, or actually God says through Jeremiah, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it declares the Lord. Whoa. So apparently the people of Israel would steal, murder, commit adultery, worship other gods. Then they would show up at the temple. They would offer their sacrifices. Sweet. All my sins are forgiven. And then they would go out and they would commit all the same sins all over again. No repentance. No hungering and thirsting for righteousness. as if they could live however they wanted during the week and all they had to do was go to the temple on the Sabbath, make their sacrifices, and they're free to go on sinning with a new bank account for sin. And by doing that, by treating the temple that way, they were turning it into a den of robbers. That's what God says. See, that's why Jesus doesn't just kick the sellers out. Matthew is very clear that Jesus kicks the sellers and the buyers out, right? He entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. It's not just the sellers turning the temple into a den of robbers. It's those buying in the temple too because they're living their lives however they wanted to, as if being a member of God's family has no bearing on the choices we make day in and day out. And then they would come to the temple, offer their sacrifices, get delivered. And Jesus is saying, if there's no repentance, if there's no life change, our religion is vain. We are making his house a den of robbers. And the sad part is the Jews could not see it. Because Passover, well, that's probably the best, best time of year to worship. 
It's like their Easter or Christmas. This was when the worship was really good. That's when they got to sing their favorite songs. This is when the temple was full of people. The whole family was together at Passover. This was the time when everything was epic. The music was better. This was the time when they really felt close to God when they were worshiping. How wonderful it must have been at this moment at Passover to remember, I am a chosen child of God. My forefathers were rescued out of slavery in Egypt. And now I get to worship at the house that God has built for himself. And yet, Jesus calls that worship sin. It's vain, it's pointless, it's fake. It excludes outsiders, it disregards holiness, and it's all about them. But there were true worshipers here. There was real religion in Israel, Matthew tells us in the next verse, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The blind and the lame were excluded from the temple in Jerusalem for basically three reasons. One, in Leviticus chapter 21, uh, God says that if a Levite is blind or lame, he cannot serve as as a priest in the temple. And so the Jews thought to themselves, well, if blind and lame priests can't serve, well then blind and lame people shouldn't even come in. The second reason why blind and lame people were not allowed in the temple is because of a uh, uh, a verse in Second uh, Samuel chapter 5. King David is leading the attack to conquer Jerusalem, and the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem at the time, before David conquered it, they tell David that even the blind and the lame could defend Jerusalem from David. So David calls the Jebusites all blind and lame. David basically says, oh, well, if if you say only the blind and lame, even the blind and lame can defend me, well, then you're all blind and lame. And with that in mind, listen to the quote. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, right? So he's clearly calling the Jebusites. They're the ones who are blind and lame. They're the ones who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame, an obvious reference to the Jebusites in this context, shall not come into the house. But if you're just looking for a proof text to keep the blind and the lame out, well, sure, here you go. And that's what the Jews were doing. The other reason the blind and the lame were not allowed into the temple is because uh, to a Jew, people who were blind and lame were suffering like that because they sinned. Their blindness and their lameness was evidence that God was punishing them So, of course, sinners like them aren't allowed in. And yet here Jesus is. He throws out the buyers and the sellers. And the blind and the lame come in. And he heals them. He lets the lame and the outcast and the rejected stay in worship. And he takes away not only their suffering, but he takes away the outward cultural evidence that God was punishing them for their sin. And so when these people are healed, what they experience is not only physical healing, but forgiveness of sin. 
all because they came to Jesus in faith, believing he could heal them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you not read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So not only was Jesus healing the blind and the lame inside the temple, but apparently there was a group of children who must have been there the day before when the crowds were calling out to Jesus, Hosanna, son of David. They've gotten into the the temple now, and they're repeating what they heard the day before from the crowds. And again, this, this continues Matthew's theme throughout the book of Matthew about children. That God hides spiritual truth from the wise and understanding and reveals it to little children. It's in Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. That's why we must turn and become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, 3. It's the little children that come to Jesus, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 19, 4. And now for the first time in the book of Matthew, we meet the chief priests because Jesus is in Jerusalem. And they're indignant that he's letting blind and lame people into the temple and accepting praise from little children, even though they've just seen him do wonderful things worthy of praise. Even though there's probably someone standing right there, maybe that the chief priests even know, who used to be blind. I mean, if it, were, if it were me, I would think, like, whoa. But, but they just ignore the wonderful things that Jesus has done. And their biggest concern is that Jesus is letting blind and lame people into the temple, and then he's letting children praise him as if somehow he's the Savior of Israel. Jesus, what are, what are you doing? Don't you hear them? Don't you hear what they're saying about you? And Jesus says, yes. <laughs> Didn't you see what just happened? Have you never read? Which is another way of saying, don't you know your Bibles? It's like saying to Bill Gates, don't you know computers? Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. Which is a quote from Psalm 8. And Jesus is saying, that it is right for these children to praise him because praise for him has been prepared by God to come out of the mouths of infants and babies. But in Psalm 8, the psalmist is actually talking about praise for Yahweh. (laughs) Which means what Jesus is saying is that it's okay for these children to praise me because God has prepared praise for himself to come out of the mouths of infants and babies and I'm God. And that's how the chief priests would for sure have heard him. And thus ends Jesus' second day in Jerusalem. And our passage continues to the next day, next day where we see the judgment on vain religion. This is what happens the next day. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. 
And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, I've always thought this was one of the strangest stories in the entire Bible. This is one of those stories that when you're reading your Bible through a year plan and you read, you think, well, that's weird. You know, but you've got you to get to work. You've got things going on. You don't, you don't have time to stop and think, like, why would, he, why would he do this? This is bizarre. If we read it just by itself, it reads like Jesus is hungry and decides to go curse a fig tree just because it doesn't have anything to eat. And Mark actually tells us it wasn't even the season for fig trees to produce fruit, which is even more bizarre because Jesus shouldn't have even expected it to produce fruit. But the point of this story is not that the fig tree doesn't have fruit on it now, but that it never will. See, throughout the Old Testament, God compares the sinfulness of Israel to a fig tree without fruit. In Jeremiah 8, God says this, he says, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. So, so I would go and I would gather my people to myself, but there was no fruit in their lives. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. And then in Hosea, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. They had fruit, right? But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. So there was a time where I saw fruit on your fathers. But when they came to Baal Peor, they worshipped shameful things. They became like the detestable things that they worshipped, right? Because we become what we behold. Basically, the fruit rotted. One more. This is from Micah. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. Right? So harvest happened. They went out and got it. There's no cluster to eat. No first ripe fig that my soul desires. Right? Can you imagine harvesting, bringing in all the fruit, and then looking, and there's no fruit. Micah goes on, the godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. So in all these verses, Israel is the fruitless grapevine or the fruitless fig tree. They're not what they were supposed to be. And Jesus knows this. It shouldn't surprise us that right after condemning Israel for their sin, smeared over by vain religion, Jesus finds a fruitless fig tree and curses it, right? As a symbolic act of judgment. And he says, may you never produce fruit again. Which means their opportunity for salvation is past. And this is the fate of fruitless religion. If my religion is all about me and for me, if my confidence is bound up in where I'm from and who my family is, the traditions I practice with my religion, the way my religion makes me feel, 
But there's no fruit, there's no holiness, there's no sorrow over sin or repentance. We're not coming to Jesus like someone who was blind and lame, clinging to him for our only hope to heal us. We're not worshiping him like a child. Jesus is saying there may come a time when our heart is so hard that we will never be able to produce fruit. And that's the warning here. Our leaves could wither, and we will die. So what is the source of real religion, then? It would have been nice if in the verses we're about to look at, the disciples would have said, Hey, Jesus, why did you curse that fig tree? And I imagine Jesus would have said, Well, it's a sign to warn you about what's going to happen to people whose religion is comfortable whose religion has no power to change them, it's all about them and their feelings and their experience. They ignore the outsiders and the outcasts. But instead, the disciples ask how he withered the fig tree. Listen. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So it seems at first like the disciples' question kind of has nothing to do with what's going on and is overly focused on what Jesus did. And then it seems like Jesus' answer, like like they asked the wrong question and then he kind of goes off with them down that rabbit trail. Jesus obviously didn't wither the fig tree just to show off his power and the cool tricks that they were going to be able to do one day if they had enough faith. He's also not promising them or us that we can have whatever we ask for. He's not guaranteeing all of us friends and family and health and wealth if we ask with enough faith. So what is happening here? Well, it's safe to say the disciples are impressed with Jesus' power. They've probably seen him do greater things than this, but it probably never got old, seeing all the amazing things Jesus did. And when we're amazed, it's natural to ask, well, how did you do that? I mean, every time I go to a magic show, I'm always sitting there wondering, how did he do that? So it's a very natural question to ask. But the reason Jesus didn't correct them, the reason Jesus didn't say, boys, you're asking the wrong question. I'm trying to make a point about the kind of judgment that's coming for people with vain religion, and all you guys care about is how I did some magic trick. The reason Jesus didn't say that is because, in a sense, and you've got to track with me here, in a sense, they were asking the right question. Because underneath their question is the deepest question that needed to be asked in this moment. And that's the question of, where do I get spiritual power? And they may have been asking about the source of spiritual power because they were curious about how Jesus withered a fig tree. 
But Jesus' answer is exactly the right answer to the question that we should all be asking at this moment. So imagine if this was the conversation. Imagine if the disciples had said, Wow, Jesus, when you drove out the money changers from the temple yesterday, and when you exposed the fruitless religion of Israel, that was a real warning for us. Um, Because we've practiced our religion that way too. Instead of coming to you for healing for our sin, like the blind and the lame did yesterday, we've continued to live in our sin, thinking that it's just going to be okay. And instead of worshiping you with innocent trust and reckless abandon, like those children did yesterday, we've kind of been embarrassed of you and ashamed of you and wanted to be cool and accepted by the world a little bit. And we've excluded people too, because if we're honest, we really don't care about their souls all that much. It's too inconvenient to make space in our lives for them to worship with us, and we just like to worship with the people that we like and that we know. And we've sinned intentionally and willingly, thinking it's okay that we could just come to the temple, make a sacrifice in order to be delivered from our guilt, and We've turned our worship into a sentimental, self-indulgent exercise where we judge the authenticity of our religion based on whether it's familiar or we like it, or whether it makes us feel good, instead of whether or not we're worshiping you as you've commanded us, with true repentance and faith, turning from sin, keeping your commandments, picking up our cross and following you, gouging out our eye, cutting off our hand if that's what it takes to keep your commandments. And so when you cursed the fruitless fig tree yesterday, we remembered that God said to the prophets, we remembered what he said about Israel being a fruitless fig tree and how God judged Israel for that. And Jesus, we were afraid. We're afraid that maybe we're a fruitless fig tree too. And that one day our window of opportunity to truly repent and believe, well, maybe that will pass. And our leaves will wither. Because we remember you saying that a good tree will produce good fruit, Jesus. Imagine if that's what they said. Imagine if that's the kind of spiritual power they were asking about. And I would would submit to you that that is. That is exactly the kind of spiritual power they're asking about. And then Jesus responds, Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Christian, if you have faith and do not doubt that all your sins are forgiven because he shed his precious blood for you, 
And that not only did he die on the cross to forgive you of your sin, but he died to free you from it so that you can truly say, I once was blind, but now I see. If you believe, which means you receive it as true, as the truest reality in all of life, and if you do not doubt, which doesn't mean we never waver, it just means we always return to Jesus over and over again every day for the rest of our life for more forgiveness and more grace and more strength. If you believe that and do not doubt, you can say to whatever mountain that's standing in your way of you walking in faithfulness and holiness with God, be thrown into the sea and it will happen. And whatever you ask for in prayer, you will receive it if you have faith, which isn't a blank check for a long life and riches. This is a promise that you will receive everything God promises. Forgiveness, holiness, perseverance, heaven, Jesus himself. All yours by faith alone. I believe we desperately need this message today. Like the Jews, we have made religion into a commercial enterprise where we buy and sell religious experiences. How many times have we, or maybe someone we know, gone to a Christian concert or a retreat so they can feel spiritually alive? without repentance. We tell ourselves holiness is not really necessary and that Jesus doesn't really expect me to take up my cross and follow him. It's just so hard to put to death my sin. And we don't even believe that we can change. We just hope that I can go to the temple every week and be forgiven and that that will be enough. So we find ourselves trusting in traditions and going through the motions. We don't fear him overturning the tables of our religious life, which my prayer is that this sermon is doing for us. We do not fear withering and becoming unable to produce fruit, which Jesus is saying we should. And then we give ourselves assurance of our right standing with God, not because we're broken over our sin and repentant, but because we think we believe the right things about God. We go to church, and sometimes we have exciting or sentimental religious experiences. But the good news of the gospel is not that somehow it's all okay and God will accept us. That's what the Jews believed. Real religion is a vital religion. It's connected to Christ by grace through faith, and it produces the fruit of repentance and a new life. If that's not what the Bible teaches, then, then we're reading a different Bible. The good news of the gospel 
is that if we believe and do not doubt and if we pray in faith that we can move mountains, addictions, secret sins, the thing that we've never told anybody that we're ashamed about, we can be free. Don't you want to be free? Don't you want to experience that? We can truly be born again. We can have a new heart and new desires and freedom from slavery to sin. We can not only know that God has forgiven all of our sins and everyone we ever will commit, but we can know that we are in Christ. We are a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. These aren't just words. They're not flowery words. It's real. And if you're here this morning and you have trouble believing this because you have battled with the same sin your whole life and you can't get over on it, the way of freedom is honestly to tell someone. That's what the church is for. We not only help each other believe that this is the gospel, but we also desperately need each other to live it out. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and this was a hard word this morning, God. We're so thankful that we get to turn now to the table. And to remember that the faith to believe the gospel doesn't come from us. The power to live, to be who you're calling us to be and who you say we already are in Christ doesn't come from us. It comes from you. It comes from your grace and your mercy. God, help us to not be satisfied with stapled on fruit and vain religion. Help us, God, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Help us to long for streams of living water. Help us to bask in the infinite grace and mercy that you offer all of us in Christ, which is true freedom. In his name we pray. Amen.